the Apostle Paul seemed accustomed to opposition to his ministry from outside sources. Everywhere he went, he was opposed primarily by Jews who did not appreciate his teaching of justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul's insistence that salvation comes through faith apart from works upset the religious apple cart of his day. And the religious leadership of the time wanted him stopped. And they did not hesitate to use violence to make their point. On his first missionary journey in what we now call Turkey, but what they then called Galatia, Paul's opponents in first, the first two cities that he visited, Antioch and Iconium, hunted him down in Lystra and stoned him there and left him for dead. Nice fellows they were. He recovered, no doubt as a result of divine intervention, and continued preaching to whoever would listen that God loved them, that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the covenant of Messiah to Israel. And he was the only way that one could be rightly related to God. Not by means of their own goodness, but by an act of simple faith. Again, faith alone in Christ alone. That was his message. And that was make, what was making them so angry. That's why he received opposition everywhere he went from without. I'm sure that Paul had no illusions about what awaited him as he started out late in the year 49 on the second of his missionary journeys. He was going back to the same area after all. He was going back to Galatia, the place where they had stoned him and left him for dead. And I think he had every bit of a reason to expect the same type of behavior from his opponents that he got the first time. After all, he's going back to the same spot where these loving religious leaders tried to kill him on his first visit. As it turned out, Paul made it through Galatia on that second visit in pretty good shape. But God sent him westward into Europe. And it came about when he came to a town by the name of Philippi that the violence started up again. He's beaten along with his friend Silas, his companion, and he's thrown into prison or into jail in Philippi. This time the, the problem came from the Romans, not from religious leaders. But it still came from without, not from within. Again, though, the message of justification by faith upset them. The miracle that he performed there upset them. Grace upset them. But it didn't upset them because he was upsetting the religious apple cart. It upset the Romans because he was upsetting their economic apple cart. I hope you see some parallels between Paul's ministry here and Jesus' ministry in the past. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was upsetting the religious apple cart of the day. The Sadducees really could care less about that, but they hated Jesus because he was upsetting their economic apple cart. Same kind of thing is paralleled in Paul's ministry. Cost people money and they get kind of mad at you. Cost people money and sometimes they're willing to kill you. And that's what they were willing to do with Paul. He was severely beaten and he was jailed. This is where that nameless Philippian jailer becomes so well known, even though we don't know his name. When he asked the Apostle Paul that question that has echoed throughout the rest of time, what do I need to do to be saved? A very succinct question for which Paul gives a very plain answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will 
be saved. He's still preaching that message of salvation by grace through faith, even though he's just been beaten again by another source. Now, they don't know that he's a Roman at the time. They're going to freak out when they, when they find out. But even his own countrymen are beating him. His countrymen according to the flesh, his Jewish countrymen, and also his countrymen according to earthly citizenship, his Roman countrymen. Paul was a man who was totally sold out for a cause. And he would not be deterred from that cause, even if it cost him his life. He was willing to die for Jesus Christ. He was willing to die for the message. But first and foremost, he was willing to die for Jesus Christ. There's an interesting contrast here. I hope you don't miss it. His opponents, particularly the religious opponents, his opponents were willing to kill him because of what he was teaching. A message of salvation by grace through faith. A message of love. That's why they wanted to kill him. They were willing to kill him for his message. He was willing to die for it. That's the Apostle Paul. Maybe this had something to do with the fact that Paul himself was once one of those guys who was willing to kill someone else for the message that they preached. He was once one who persecuted Christians. Whatever the situation, we know that Paul is a man of conviction. And it's conviction that will cause you to be willing to die for something. Not just an opinion. So many people have an opinion, and as soon as you challenge them on it, they're very happy to leave it. But Paul was willing to give his life for Jesus Christ because he knew the message that he preached wasn't just a philosophical nicety. It meant the difference between life and death, eternal life and death. As we work through the Corinthian epistles, Paul's conviction is going to shine through. After leaving Philippi, Paul then went on to Thessalonica and then to Berea and then on to Athens. At Thessalonica, the old opposition surfaced again from the religious leadership. And once again, they wanted to do violence upon him. He wanted to stay, but his friends said, no, you've got to get out of here. So he left and then went on to Berea and then finally on to Athens. After a relatively brief stay in Athens... Some people say it was an unsuccessful visit. Other people recognize some successes that he did have there. But it was a relatively brief stay. He moves the short distance down to Corinth. Now it's the year 50. And it's probable that Paul is also about 50 years old when he reaches Corinth. Which is interesting because Paul is traipsing all around the ancient world on Roman roads. But still he's traipsing all around the ancient world in his 50s and in his 60s ultimately. It wasn't an easy ministry that the Lord gave him. Corinth would prove to be a challenging city for Paul, partly because of external opposition. Okay, there was some of that. And partly because of opposition that developed from within. And this is the first time, the first significant time anyway, that Paul is really going to face internal opposition from a church that he founded. If there ever was a church that we might think that Paul might have regretted ever founding, it was the church at Corinth. Hands down, nothing else, nothing else even comes close. If there was ever a church that we, he might have been tempted to walk away from and to wash his hands and to knock the dust off of his feet and say, I'm not coming back here, it was the church at Corinth. He was used to dealing with enemies that wanted to kill him. 
People from without, people that opposed his message and wanted to kill him. People who were non-Christians, non-believers. But he wasn't used to this. This is something new. From this point on, he will have to deal with a group of people that gave him just about as hard of a time as any group of people has ever given a pastor. Now, he's an apostle. But he's, he's going to deal with people that are giving him just about as hard a time as anybody who's ever given a hard time to someone in a church setting. And that's saying a lot. Because I know a lot of pastors that have had a really hard time from their congregations. This congregation is an exception. But I know a lot of pastors that have had a lot of hard times from congregations. But this one takes the cake. The Corinthian church takes the cake. They were critical of his character. They were critical of his leadership skills. They were critical of his ability to communicate the word of God. They were a rowdy and a rebellious bunch. That's the only way I can describe the church at Corinth. Yet he never gave up on them. And that's key. That's one of the things that we can observe from the Apostle Paul's life and learn so much from it. He never gave up upon this rowdy, rebellious bunch. No matter what they did to him, he kept coming back for more. Having studied the Corinthian epistles quite a few times myself, there were several times I would say, Paul, leave. Out of here. I, I, would not, I would not come back to this group. They were so critical, hypercritical, wrongly critical. That's hard for someone to take. It's a common issue in Christianity, unfortunately. I remember one time when I was at Dallas Seminary, Chuck Swindoll did an entire chapel message on how pastors should handle criticism. You wouldn't think so, because I think he's got over a million people that listen to his radio program every day, something like that. But Chuck's probably one of the most criticized people in Christian circles in the United States. Makes no sense at all to me. You can disagree about this or that or the other thing, perhaps, but all this criticism is totally unnecessary. It's almost like it's a sport for many Christians. It's almost like it's fun. We practice it. No, it ought not to be that way. Criticism is difficult to take, but the Apostle Paul can handle it, and he never walked out on the Corinthian church. Now, he fussed at them. He chewed them out a time or two. He set them straight, but he never left them. In many ways, the Apostle Paul, in his interaction with the Corinthians, models the love of God to the Corinthian church. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, God says. Now, if that's how God feels about the Corinthians, that gives you a clue about how Paul feels about the Corinthians. How any pastor should feel about his church. The people that God put under his under-shepherdship. Now, that's not to say, I don't want you, I want you to get the wrong impression at all. Paul never let the Corinthians walk all over him. But neither does that mean that God will allow in his love us to walk all over him either. Now, there's times when God pulls off his divine belt and... Wax us a time or two. So the application to what we'll study this morning is not that. Because we love someone, we let them walk all over us. That's not the application here. Paul never left them. That's the application. And I think we can make that in a, in a lot of different ways in our own Christian experience. Husbands and wives are going to have difficulties. If you're not married yet, I hate to break the news to you, but husbands and wives are going to have difficulties. Never met, a, never met a husband and wife that was sane that claimed that they didn't. Really? It's the truth. Now, don't, don't act like I'm not telling the truth. You know that. I know a couple of you know it. 
Well, I won't look you in the eye right now. It's going to happen because you have two oldest sin natures living in the same house. And there's one exception, and that's Cindy and I. But other than Cindy and I, and that's the truth, isn't it? It really is. So just because you have trouble, does that mean you walk out? I mean, really, does it? Because you've had a difficult day, does that mean you just decide, I'm going to leave and get me a younger model? I don't think so. We're going to have trouble with our children from time to time. Does that mean you say, well, you're no longer my child? That's a silly statement anyway. They're always going to be your child whether you like it or not. There's a lot of aspects of life where we need to stick with it. Even when people are not necessarily treating us as well as we would like to be treated. But we stick with it for a higher cause. Sometimes a husband or even a wife will have to stick with a marriage because of their love for God. There are times when spouses can become unlovely. It all happens to everybody. Hopefully it's temporary. Maybe it's just a few minutes. But if we all hooked them, every time there was an opportunity to hook them, just because a spouse upset us, we'd all be single. And that's the truth. So we can see the love of God that Paul models in the Corinthian church to a bunch of people who gave him a lot harder time than your husband or wife's going to ever give you, I certainly hope. And he stays with them because he knows God loves these people. And God sent him into this situation. If he's going to leave, it's going to have to be because God pulls him out, not because he decides to do so. He never gave up on them. Throughout the whole ordeal, and I'll call it an ordeal, Paul never forgot for whom he worked. And I think that's key for people in ministry. And for others as well, to not forget who it is we serve. Who's the boss with a capital B? Oh, yeah, there's, there's congregational forms of government, and there's elder rule forms of government, Presbyterian forms. There's all these kind of different things where there's hierarchies. But in the end, we all work for God. In the end, if he's the one that's pleased with us, then we should be pleased. If he's not pleased, it doesn't matter what a church board feels or a congregation feels. You can fool them. can't fool God. Paul never forgot who he worked for. He was convicted in his own heart that God loved these rebels. And he was equally convinced that God wanted him to love these rebels too. God allowed this in Paul's life for a reason, just like, just like he allows conflict to come into your life for a reason. I suspect it was to teach Paul something of God's own faithfulness, even toward wayward children who are very happy to accept salvation but want nothing to do with obedience after salvation. I'm afraid that category includes us all from time to time. We're all rebellious from time to time. When all is said and done, we know of four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. What we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians are actually the 2nd and the 4th letters that Paul wrote. After 18 months in Corinth, Paul left and sailed back to his home base in Antioch. Now he left knowing that he's going to come back. He's not leaving them in the sense that I was speaking of a moment ago, but he geographically leaves to move back to Antioch. After a period of rest and recovery, Paul set out again this time making his way to the very important city of Ephesus. Let me pause and say this. At the time in which Paul lived, Ephesus and Corinth 
were the two most significant cities that he planted churches in, um, in terms of uh, from a political nature, socioeconomic nature, trade routes, and so forth. Corinth and Ephesus were the two most significant centers that he ministered in, up until that point anyway. Paul made Ephesus his primary base of operations for the next three years, from 53 to 56 A.D. Now, while he's ministering in Ephesus during those three years, he gets word from Corinth, which is only about 200 miles away by boat, roughly the distance, say, between Houston and Dallas, he receives news that there was serious immorality that was taking place in the Corinthian church. As we stressed last time, one of the fundamental problems in Corinth was that the church, rather than being a positive influence on that culture, was allowing the culture to be a negative influence on that church. And it's happened. The Corinthian immorality had made its way into the church at Corinth in a really big way. So rather than the church having an opportunity to be a positive influence on the culture, it really looked, it looked a lot more like the culture than it did the church of Jesus Christ. In response to that news, now remember he's ministering in Ephesus. This is about three years after the first time he ever came to Corinth. He stays in Corinth for 18 months, leaves and then makes it back to Ephesus. So this is about 18 months after he left Corinth. In that 18 months, the church basically fell apart from a moral standpoint. And Paul receives this news, and I'm sure he is greatly grieved by it. As a result of receiving this news, he writes a letter to the church at Corinth from Ephesus. What 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 will call the former letter. We don't have that letter. The Holy Spirit did not see fit to keep that for us and to make it part of the canon of Scripture. So the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in response to this immorality situation is lost. We don't have it. When we get to that point in chapter 5, we're going to find out that the immorality that he's speaking about, he's not speaking about immorality and not associating with, with immoral people who are unbelievers. He's talking about not associating with immoral people who were believers in the church. There are some people that will teach you with a straight face that if you have a problem with immorality, you must not be, a, and by immorality I'm speaking primarily of sexual immorality here, that if you have a problem with sexual immorality, you're really not a believer at all. You're just telling people you're a believer. There are people that actually would say something like that because they would say, if you really were a believer, you couldn't do that. Well, Paul begs to differ. He says we ought not to, not to associate with the people who are practicing sexual immorality in the church. So there are people that are believers that can fall into that particular sin. There's no sin that an unbeliever commits that a believer can't potentially commit. There's no sin. The Holy Spirit doesn't include this first letter into the canon. That's all we know about it. It's just very briefly. In response to that letter that Paul sent, again, he's in Ephesus at the time, about 200 miles away from Corinth. He gets word that things in Corinth weren't getting better. They're getting worse. And I'm sure the apostle felt, as soon as he wrote them a letter, that everything was going to be okay. That they would respond to it, like it seemed like the other churches did that he ministered to. But not this rowdy bunch. Things get worse. Things don't get better. 
there's more information that comes to him from a group called Chloe's people. As a result of the information that he gets from Chloe's people, where he finds out that things are getting worse, not better, he writes a second letter. The second letter he writes is what you have in front of you today. The second letter he writes is 1 Corinthians. So once more, the first letter he writes is lost. The second letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. And he sends it near the spring, in the spring of A.D. 56. So this is near the end of his time in Ephesus. What we know is 1 Corinthians, then, is really the second letter that Paul writes. Troubled by what's going on in Corinth, Paul follows up the writing of his first letter with a brief visit of his own. That visit apparently didn't go very well. Again, you see the sequence. He ministers in, in, in Corinth for 18 months. He goes back to the home base at Antioch, has a little R&R, comes back into Ephesus where he actually stays for three years, gets word when he's back in Ephesus that things aren't going well in Corinth, writes them a letter that we don't have, and tells them not to associate with immoral people in the church. He gets word back from Chloe's people that that letter wasn't effective. He writes another letter, 1 Corinthians, that you have in front of you, not just in response to that, but in response to several questions that they had. He follows up that letter with another visit to them. He wants to make a personal visit. Surely, if they're not going to respond to his letters, they'll respond to a personal visit. It looks like at that personal visit, they eat him up and spit him out. The visit didn't go as well as Paul would have thought. His efforts to help the Corinthians work through these problems were unsuccessful. And apparently, at that time, the Corinthians were extremely unkind and they were extremely insulting to the man that brought them the gospel in the first place. Paul later will call this a painful visit. Once he gets back to Ephesus, he writes a third letter. This time, opening up a can of you-know-what. I mean, he's just about had it with these folks, and he comes down on them really hard in this letter. He tried to settle this thing peacefully. That didn't work. Now he unloads on them. We don't have this letter. kind of wish we did. It would be kind of neat to see how the Apostle Paul unloaded on somebody. But in, later, in the later writing, he'll call, in 2 Corinthians, he'll call this the severe letter. And Paul sent Titus to deliver this severe letter. Interesting to me, he doesn't send Timothy. Everybody's got a role in the body of Christ. All different personalities can be used. But there are some times when a stronger personality is necessary. Titus was his drill sergeant. Titus was his enforcer. And so he sends Titus, let's see what you do with Titus. It was no casual choice for him. He's a pretty tough guy. Paul had hoped to wait in Ephesus for Titus's report about how they handled this severe letter. But things in Ephesus changed for him, and he had to leave. And so he goes north to Troas, and he waits in Troas for Titus. And when Titus gets to Troas to talk to the Apostle Paul, we find out that the news is mixed. Some people responded to this very severe letter, and some people didn't. It's probable that there was one fellow in Corinth that's the ringleader behind this insistence on rebellion against the Apostle Paul. And he, he leads a faction of Corinthian believers. Now, how big this faction is, we don't know. How big the church at Corinth is, we don't know. The church at Corinth probably could have fit in this front section here today. I don't know that how big it was. There's no indication. But some people responded and others 
don't. So Paul wrote a fourth letter, what we call 2 Corinthians, from Macedonia, maybe from Philippi, possibly, late in the year 56. In other words, about six months after he wrote 1 Corinthians, he followed up with the severe letter and then 2 Corinthians. If we look at what's also happening in Ephesus during the years 53 to 56, especially in the year 56, we see that that year in particular was a very stressful year for the Apostle Paul. All the while he's ministering in Ephesus with its own stresses. Again, those, many of those are coming from outside again. The Corinthian church is imploding. You see why he laments at, at one point of all the different stresses that he has. And then at the end of that list of stresses, he says, And on top of that, I have the daily care for all the churches. I think he was probably talking about the Corinthian church when he said that. But things weren't going real well for him in Ephesus either. The teaching went fabulously. The church was growing fabulously in Ephesus, but the pressure was from without. So he's getting it from every which direction. But he doesn't quit. I know that everyone in this room has been tempted to quit something at some point, something that's important. You're getting it from all sides. And you think this is not worth it. But if this is where God wants you, it is worth it. Paul's a great example of that here. So one more time, and this won't be the last time we go over it. It'll help, be helpful to review it from time to time. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Numbers 1 and 3 are lost. We have numbers 2 and 4. So numbers 2 and 4 are 1st and 2nd Corinthians. As we spend time in both of these epistles, I think that will become more clear to you. But I give you that background information up front for a reason. This group of believers at Corinth gave Paul more trouble than any other group that he ministered to. And it's not even close. In fact, a case could be made that the Corinthian believers gave Paul a harder time than all the other churches put together. I think you can make a case for that. And he had to wonder if it was worth it. But he stays with it and he demonstrates in the process God's love to the Corinthians. If they're not going to listen to what I say, and if they're not going to listen to what I write, maybe they'll listen to my life. Now that is a great stress in the Apostle Paul's ministry. That it's one thing to, it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to live out something. Living out your Christianity is the greatest apologetic of all. Love is the greatest apologetic of all. He gives us a model, too, for godly leadership. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always for you, for the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In that verse, Paul's focus is clearly upon God. These people are giving him a hard time. I've just outlined. When he writes 1 Corinthians, they've already insulted him greatly. But yet he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul can love these people who insulted him, who challenged his authority, who said in effect, just who are you to tell us what to do? These people caused him great grief, but he loved them because he knew that God loved them. Now, this is a minor applicational point, but I want you to take it with you today. That's something that you might try sometime. When you're having interpersonal conflict with another believer and you're mad as you know what with them, 
Just remember, and this is going to be hard to do. It's going to be hard to do. But just remember that as much as you know God loves you, even as mad as you are at them, God loves them just as much as he loves you. And if we'll remember that, it's going to be a little more difficult for us to do mean things to them. The person you're so mad at, he loves them, so you better be careful. We better be careful how we treat that person. They are a child of God too. And that's what comes shining through in this letter. A phrase that oftentimes we just pass right by, wouldn't we? Because it's just the beginning. I thank my God always for you. Well, no, given the circumstance that is in Paul's life when he's writing this, this is huge. He's thanking God for the Corinthian believers. Actually, it's more specific than that. He's thanking God for the grace that he's shown to these Corinthian believers. When he says he thanks God always, pantote, it carries the meaning at every opportunity or as a regular habit. I thank God for the grace that's been given, given to you. Now let's be frank for a moment. It's clear that we've been given a mandate to pray for our enemies. To pray for those who treat us poorly. That's true. But really, pray for them at every opportunity? Come on, Lord, pray for them at regular intervals? Really? That's really what I need to do? No, I think one time would be appropriate, wouldn't you? Or maybe twice if we were feeling extremely spiritual. I think I could at least fulfill that mandate that way. Paul says, no, at every opportunity. We see right from the get-go what Paul's made of. One thing that I think we all long for is genuineness. And Paul was genuine. And we see it here. He didn't preach one thing publicly and then practice another thing privately. He prayed for them on a regular basis. I don't want to be totally transparent with you. This is hard for me. To be praying for people that are critical and insulting and doing mean things, it's counterintuitive. And it's probably counterintuitive for you, too. This is not confession time. Only one person gets to do that this morning. But I'm sure most of you could amen it. Don't. But I'm sure most of you could. Because it's counterintuitive. There's a tendency in all of us to want to pull out one of those Old Testament imprecatory prayers and lay it on their tail for them. You know what I mean? Lord, please help their hands to fall off, their hair to fall out. <laughs> May they go hungry tomorrow. Actually, that's a total misunderstanding of imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory prayers were never about revenge. It was about God. It was about justice and God. We all have that tendency, at least I do. Peter had that tendency. Lord, you want me to call fire down from heaven on him? Jesus said, no, no, you're missing the point, Pete. Calm down, take a deep breath, take a pill if that's what you need to take. But, you know, there is a principle of dying to self in the Word of God. Living for God. In fact, they go together oftentimes. I need to die, for myself, die to self and live to God. It almost makes it sound like I can't live for myself and God at the same time. Well, you can live for yourself and God at the same time if you're totally devoted to God. We need to die to ourselves first because we have this tendency within us to make everything about us. They insulted me. God said, I know that, but I'll take care of it. You be nice to them. You pray for them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. If God wants to fry their heads, it's his business. It's not yours. Stay out of the way so that you don't get singed in the process. 
Our responsibility is to pray for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, knowing that God loves them and he loves us. And he's going to take care of the discipline. Hey, don't be too quick to call down fire on the, wrong, on the one who's doing the wrong. You might be surprised to find out that it's you that gets fired. It's you that gets fried. You know, always be careful about calling for the justice of God. Just lay it on us. Paul expresses gratitude at every opportunity that God has shown grace to the Corinthians. I want you to watch. He is not expressing gratitude for the Corinthian rebellion. That's sinful. He's not expressing gratitude that the Corinthians were immoral. That's a misunderstanding of that phrase in the New Testament. In in, in everything give thanks. We need to study that at some point. There's a contextual boundary there. He's not thankful that they were immoral. He's not thankful that they were rebellious. He's thankful that God shows them grace and that God has this whole thing under control and God's still going to grow this church in spite of themselves. That's what he's grateful for. And so he prays for them. I have found personally that praying for people that I feel like have truly wronged me in some way, and it probably happens less than I think, I have found that just the act of praying for them changes my attitude tremendously. It's very difficult to stay mad at somebody that you're praying for, if you're really praying for them, if you're really thanking God for the grace that's shown to them, if you're thanking God for their salvation, that they're going to spend eternity in heaven. Now, that's different from thanking God for their sin. But thanking God for them And for the grace that God has shown to them, that's a different thing. And I've got to tell you, in my own experience, and maybe yours is the same, it's very difficult to stay mad at somebody that you're praying for. You want to do your spiritual life a favor? Make a list of the people that you're mad at and pray for them this afternoon. Have some special time and pray just for those people. And spend some time. Pray for them and for their families, for their job situation, for their marital situation, whatever it may be. And you'll come away, as the song says, with a different point of view. It's amazing what happens. It's amazing what happens when we obey God. Because God's the one that tells us to do this. If one is to be in leadership over God's children, as Paul was, one has to remember that those children belong to God. They're God's children. That's why they're called God's children. They belong to Him. And He loves them every bit as much as He loves us. So I think we all have the opportunity to practice this. There is something magical, enchanting that happens when we pray for someone that we think has harmed us in some way. Something absolutely enchanting. I thank my God always concerning you. You're in my prayers at every interval, at regular intervals. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you In Christ Jesus. It's interesting to me, Paul's non-Christian opponents wanted to kill him. Because he was preaching salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. In Corinth, we're introduced to a new situation. Paul's Christian brothers and sisters don't necessarily want to kill him. Not with their fists, but they're doing everything they can to destroy him with their mouths. But yet he loves them in spite of all that. 
The opponents were doing everything they could in Corinth, short of violence, and I do have to give them that, to hurt the apostle. But Paul showed his willingness to die to himself for their benefit. He's a shining example of what it means to be a spiritual leader. 